Bibles this morning to 1 Peter chapter 3. Sunday morning we're studying the book of 1 Peter. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now and they've got lots of Bibles. And if you just wave to them and get their attention, they'll get a Bible into your hands. And it's always best to hear the Word of God but also read it along as well with an open Bible. And then if you don't own a Bible, absolutely take that Bible home and uh, begin to learn about God in, in the reading of it. And so make it, make it yours as a gift. First Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tender-hearted. Be courteous. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. Knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days. Now that's a good description of a good life, isn't it? To love life and see good days. Let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. And it's interesting to us. There's so much that we... Read in your word and we say, yes, that really, we need to know that and be reminded of that. And that's such powerful instruction. And then there are other passages that we come to that we look at and we could think to ourselves that it's, this is a no-brainer. This is, why would you even need to put it in your word? And yet, Lord, as you watch this big, wide world, you know everything that's going on. You're aware of all things in the world, also within your body, the body of Christ, your people. And so you know what we need to hear, even when we don't realize how badly we need to hear it. And we pray, Lord, that you would take what appears obvious on the, in these verses today, and, Lord, that you would give them a fresh... Uh, just anointing and a sense of importance to each one of us because they're so important to you. Thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for your voice and your instruction. Thank you for your love and for your wisdom. Thank you for the privilege of studying your word this morning. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The letter of 1 Peter was written against a backdrop of persecution and of suffering. The Roman emperor at the time, as we've seen in recent weeks, an emperor by the name of Nero, had been behind uh, arson fires that were set in the city of Rome in an attempt on his part to burn large sections of the city to the ground so that he might then in their place build a greater and a grander Rome as kind of a monument to his name for history. 
And what Nero underestimated was the backlash that would arise among the Roman people in the city of Rome against the fires. And the backlash was so great that it really threatened his position of power. And so he realized he didn't have the political capital to say, yes, I did it, but here I have this grander uh, picture in view, and ultimately it was going to all work out better. He realized that he had some real problems on his hand, and he needed to find a scapegoat to blame all of this on. And so he identified what was at the time a relatively small and a certainly a politically powerless group that existed in the Roman Empire at the time, and that was a group known as Christians to then pin the blame on for the fires. And the result was that a very, very terrible persecution, very violent persecution arose against Christians in the city of Rome, but it wasn't just limited there. It then began to emanate out from the city of Rome into other parts of the Roman Empire. And so Peter sat down in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he wrote this letter to Christians who were in the midst of this persecution or for whom great persecution was approaching in order to provide them with encouragement, to provide them with perspective, to provide them with practical instruction on how to handle their world changing literally overnight from being this quiet, peaceful, almost overlooked group of people in the world to now becoming the object of, uh, of the wrath of the great uh, world empire at the time. And so Peter is... This letter of First Peter is written to Christians who are in the middle of great suffering, in the middle of great difficulty, or the potential for it is very, very near. And that's why all through history, when Christians uh, find themselves in times of great difficulty and trial, one of the first places that we turn to in the Bible for perspective and encouragement and instruction related to what we now find ourselves in the middle of. Yesterday was yesterday. It was all fine. Today I got the phone call and now everything is not so fine. We make a beeline to the letter of 1 Peter for these things. Now, in this first word I want you to notice of verse 8 is that word finally. And it ties this section of the letter to the section that began all the way back in chapter 2 verse 13 where Peter instructs us as Christians concerning how to put to silence the foolish ignorance of men. In other words, how to put to silence the foolish ignorance of men, men and women who were so ignorant as to believe the lie that Nero put out uh, in, without checking out the facts first. And so how in the world do you silence false accusations when you're operating from the kind of position of weakness that Christians were in the first century? And Peter tells them that we do that by living lives that are so extraordinary, so exemplary uh, in the midst of the human population and mankind that when people look at the lives of Christians and they hear the rumor, it would create doubt in their mind to believe that rumor to be true in the light of the lives that they have seen Christians live right before them. 
within their family or within their neighborhood or at their businesses or within their community. And so Peter has already addressed how to do this in the realms of Christian citizenship, being a Christian employee, and the ministry of Christian marriage. And now he turns and gives us instruction concerning how we are to do this and to uh, make these accusations appear foolish in the light of our treatment of one another as Christians. In other words, Peter is saying we cannot control what people think of us or the fact that our lives have come under very, very close scrutiny by our fellow citizens. We can't control that. But what we can control is what they do see and what they do hear as they scrutinize our lives. And Peter is saying, when they scrutinize our lives and look at our relationship with one another as Christians, here's what we want the world to see and what God wants the world to see. And first of all, he addressed what was to be our attitude toward and our treatment of, again, one another as Christians, which tells us that the world watches how we treat one another as Christians. I've heard more than once in uh, witnessing to people that don't know the Lord yet and sharing the gospel of Christ uh, with them that they wanted absolutely nothing to do with Christianity uh, solely on the basis of the violation of Peter's instruction here in, in terms of even what they experienced in growing up in a Christian home of how it is that they lived in a home that in as the family would go to church and how they would present themselves and smile to people and be nice to people. That was all one thing. But they would say, when we went home, what God said about people at church, you wouldn't believe. And the hypocrisy of it was so great that when they grew into adult life, they said, I don't, it, it sickens me. I, I, that's worse than anything I've ever encountered in the world. I don't want anything to do with Christianity as a result. And sometimes it's not in a home when you're growing up. Sometimes I've been turned away in terms of sharing the gospel with someone because of the poor witness of a Christian in terms of their attitude toward other Christians and what they say and what they do in a work environment. And, and that turns people off and says, listen, I know a Christian, and if that's what a Christian is, I'm not at all interested in being one. And it makes us realize that our lives are being watched and our words are being listened to. It's a funny thing about the lost world. You try and talk, and I mean, we've all, all of us have been not saved at some time in our life. So it's not like all we understand is the kingdom of God and nothing of the world. We understand it. But it's funny when you deal with people that don't know the Lord yet, and you can hardly say anything, get them to listen to a word about something that is spiritual. I mean, they just won't listen to you so often. But then the moment we open up our mouths at home or in a work environment or wherever it might be, and we begin to speak about other Christians, they're all ears. I mean, you can hear a pin drop. They will, they will listen with great earnestness. 
to how we view and how we treat and how we speak of other Christians. It's a funny thing, but it's a, it's a true thing and it's a real thing. And it makes us realize concerning the people that aren't Christians, concerning our own children and our own homes, that an awful lot is at stake, a lot more than we sometimes realize in our treatment of one another. And so we're to treat each other well as Christians, Peter says, because people are watching and this is what God wants them to see. He tells us in verse 8 that we're to be of one mind. We could just as easily translate it of the same mind or like-minded. It doesn't mean that we're all going to think the same way about everything or that we're going to process information the same way or that, you know, we're, uh, you know, just kind of robots or something. We're all very different, and God has given us all different minds, different ways of processing information. And so there is, there, we don't agree upon every issue. We do agree upon what's clearly taught in the Scriptures, but then everything else is, it is a lot of diversity within the body of Christ. And so this speaks of a unity of getting along, of living in harmony with one another as opposed to fighting with one another or criticizing one another or engaging in carnal and petty divisions. Instead, we're to be of one mind. Now, not all conflict among Christians is carnal and petty. But in my experience, and I, I, uh, I'm sure in your experience too, the overwhelming majority of it is really uh, petty nonsense. It's very, very small things that we will uh, divide over. Now, the context here is persecution. And so Peter is saying that as Christians in this world, we have enough coming against us without looking to fight with one another over non-essentials or over some uh, kind of imperfection that really marks every Christian because all of us are growing in Christ-likeness until the day we go into to heaven. It is not a mature Christian who spends all of their day and all of their life noticing every mistake and every flaw in every Christian and then making it known to everyone else. It's a funny thing about raising a child. When you have a very, very young child, their first consciousness is, of, uh, uh, is always of what's wrong. They can spot what's wrong with every person, every situation. So this is what's wrong, that's wrong, this is wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. And you put up with it. You guide them out of it as they get older. But you realize, all right, something is budding in them. At least they're recognizing what is right and what is wrong. And they're noticing what is wrong. The problem is, is that if they don't mature out of that condition and then... They keep growing chronologically in terms of age, but they don't grow spiritually into some maturity. And you run into them 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years later, and all they know how to do is spot what's wrong in other people or what's wrong in the body of Christ. And it's a sad thing, but it's a very common thing. I don't say it's a majority thing, but it's more common than we'd like to sometimes admit 
Maturity occurs, and there is that necessary step where we look early in our Christian life and we can spot what's wrong with everything. But ultimately, God wants to take us to a place where we see what's wrong, and then he shows us what the solution is and our part in the solution. Now we're moving toward maturity. So we never want to find ourselves this morning bogged down in that place and thinking, my great gift to the body of Christ is that I can tell you at the drop of a hat what's wrong with every Christian I've ever met and every church I've ever attended and think that that's some kind of a gift to the body of Christ or some kind of a gift to God. It's not. It's important in its place to have discernment and to see in other lives what we can learn and avoid falling into ourselves But always there has to be that place where we're growing into maturity. And the more mature a Christian becomes, the more he or she will be grieved by these kind of sinful divisions in the body of Christ until we come to a place where we really fear it in our own lives. I don't think any of us ever leave the place where we say, I don't have the capacity in my flesh any longer to engage in that kind of thing. But our prayer is to the Lord, Lord, help me never to do that. Help me never to come down to that level. I'm capable of it, Lord, but I don't want to do that. I don't want that blood on my hands. I don't want that person's reputation on my hands. I don't want my life to be sidetracked by that kind of pettiness. And, and that's a mark of maturity when someone looks and says, I don't want to participate in that kind of, of division and destruction of reputation. He tells us second in verse eight that we're to have compassion on one another. And the words having compassion are the translation of a Greek word that we get our English word sympathy from. It's made up of two Greek words, one word meaning to be affected by something or to feel, uh, that is to have my feelings stirred up uh, within me by some circumstance, and then the other word means with. And so it means to have a fellow feeling with uh, one another. And we are to have sympathy for one another. If a Christian cannot receive understanding and sympathy from a fellow Christian in this world, then where else are we going to find it? Especially when we find ourselves in a place where Christians were in this first century. And that may be coming our way, no matter where we are living in the whole wide world. But I look at myself as a Christian and I think, If I cannot, if there is no place for me to go or for you to go in the whole wide world where Christians are not being torn apart, their reputations as they are by their enemies in the world, and if the church becomes that as well, then where are we going to find sympathy? Who else is going to understand what's required? to stay faithful to the Lord and obedient to the Lord in this world that we live in and have real compassion and sympathy uh, upon us. And I've mentioned it before, but I'll say it again. I think it helps to realize that every single Christian in the world that you will ever meet that is walking the walk and talking the talk, I guarantee you they are paying a price for that. They're in need of sympathy, a fellow feeling from another Christian. 
They may never tell you what their problems are. They may never tell you what's happening privately in their life for their faithfulness to Christ. But you can be sure that it's happening. And we really need one another's compassion and sympathy and understanding. And God knows it even when we lose sight of it. He says in verse 8 that we're to love as brothers. This is the Greek word phileo, brotherly love. Love on an emotional plane, on an intellectual plane. And so it's to have this affection for one another, a fondness for one another as Christians. And so what Peter is saying is there is to be this recognition that we are a part of a family when we become Christians, that that other Christian is a member of our family. They share our same heavenly father. They are our brother. They are our sister. And so that's when somebody's name is being scandalized, some Christian is being uh, spoken evil of, that that's not just a name that's floating out there. That's a real living human being that's loved by God and is as loved by God as, as any of us are loved by God. That's a member of our family. And then he tells us that we are to be tender-hearted. And, of course, a tender heart is a soft heart. And this is as opposed to being hard-hearted. And so we're to be sensitive to others as opposed to becoming hard-hearted or becoming calloused toward one another, uh, even as Christians. Now, the world that we live in today is so far out of order, so crazy, It's so far away from God's standard, God's law, His ways, and a world pays a price for that. The further you move away from God's commandments and His way, then the more something is going to destabilize, whether it's an individual human life or whether it's the whole wide world. Nobody's exempt from it. And so we see the world moving away by degrees from God and from his ways. And so we watch the world as it's fragmenting before our very uh, very uh, eyes. And so as the world is fragmenting, we turn on the news and we're just swamped with a continual flow of bad news, continually exposed to bad behavior from whose what two people began to fight over here and who dumped their baby off over here to what nation is invading another nation to which football teams are fighting on the... And it's just this constant exposure to bad behavior. And then pretty soon we become, we can become very, very callous, very hard-hearted and very, very cynical. And it's something we need to fight because it's not a good thing. And we have to be careful not to let it happen to us as Christians. And one of the problems is, is that we can begin to get calloused uh, and, and jaded, not only as it relates to the world, but then to carry that over into the body of Christ. And that becomes our attitude toward other Christians. Very hard-hearted, very cynical attitude toward Christians in violation of the command here to be tender-hearted. Now, 
As a pastor, I have heard so many things through the years, and I have seen so many things, and I have experienced so much through the years that could really, really leave a person jaded and uh, cynical concerning every Christian. I think it's just the grace of God that keeps us from going there. But I tell you, I stand before you as God is my witness. I love the body of Christ more than I've ever loved the body of Christ. For all of our spots and all of our wrinkles. I love individual Christians like I've never loved individual Christians my whole Christian life. It just keeps growing and growing as it's supposed to in our lives. I do remember a change that I needed to make in this vein, though, many, many years ago to try and protect being tenderhearted and not becoming jaded and calloused toward the body of Christ and just, you know, kind of hard-hearted toward it. At this time, it was relatively early in my being a pastor, this time there were so many newsletters that were being mailed out at the time and you could subscribe to them. And if you subscribe to one, then all of them came to you. And they're kind of discernment ministries and, and they were ministries that were kind of given over to looking for error, doctrinal error, practical error within what professed to be Christianity. And so they would put these newsletters out each month and so-and-so said this and it's heretical and this and that and all and everything. And so uh, that that kind of stuff and that was coming in. I didn't always read all of it, but I'd read a little bit of it. And then it was interesting that over time, some of those publications went from exposing actual error to exposing kind of early hints of what they thought would someday become error in different leaders or in different churches. So it got out ahead of the horse a little bit. So they're creating all of this suspicion and this real, you know, cynical view related to the body of Christ. And I thought to myself, I said, uh, and it's, it's okay to talk to yourself. David talked to himself. He said, why art thou cast out? Oh, my soul. They'll think you're kooky when you're standing in front of the lima bean section in the store and you're talking to yourself. But it's okay. It's biblical. And I said to myself, you know, I am going to have to, for my own longevity, not just as a pastor, but as a tender-hearted Christian, I'm going to have to cut myself off from this kind of hard-hearted, cynical view of the body of of Christ. And and I, what I've got to do for my own longevity is just to focus on all of the good things that are happening in the body of Christ too. And to focus not just on the Christians that are having problems or the Christians, those who are professing to be Christians that are obviously living in hypocrisy, but to set my focus on those who are doing very, very well in their Christian life, growing like crazy, amazing what's happening in their life. And I chose to move my focus from the one to the other. It's a funny thing. I don't know if you blog or do any of that kind of thing. I'm not a blogger. I've never gone on any site and then typed in my opinion related to anything because I'm, I don't know enough about computers. I know how to word process. And don't, don't, have, don't have pity on me. I can go online, get the news, all that kind of stuff. It's all I want to know. 
So, but you can go on and you can read the blogs. And I, I'm afraid that if I hit send, I'll have sent our entire uh, f- uh, financial report of our home out into 4,500 people or something like that. But it's amazing in the blogosphere how 10 people can sound like a 1,000 or 10,000. And you look and you just say, these are just, the, these are just 10 people saying the same thing over and over again, but you would think this is the dominant view in the body of Christ. And, and it, it's the same thing so often as we look at one another in the body of Christ. Yeah, there's some bad apples in there. One bad apple don't spoil the whole bunch girl. As the poets of the last century told us. And it just takes a handful This takes a very small group, and we give it such undue proportion. When God's people, indwelt by Him, are doing the most amazing things in the world, here in Modesto and all over the world. And so the importance of keeping our focus in that place and not having it redirected. That first century world that Peter was writing to, very, very cold, very, very hard-hearted. And I fear that maybe the world is headed in that direction uh, once again. And so it's vitally important that the world see tenderheartedness in action somewhere and be attracted by it. And God says, I want them to see that, even if it completely ceases to exist in the world around you. I always want them to see this and our attitude toward one another as Christians and in our treatment of one another. He says that we're to be courteous to one another there in verse 8. It's a sad thing. Maybe you grew up in a home like this or you were aware of a home like this, that sometimes members of a family will treat a complete stranger better than, that they, better than they treat another family member. It's a goofy thing, but, but it happens. And sometimes within a family, family members can begin to take each other for granted and begin to treat each other in a way that they would never treat a stranger. They would never talk to anyone like that at a bus stop. They'd never lose their temper like that at work. They'd never talk down to somebody like that in a public environment, and yet they feel the freedom to be discourteous uh, to one another. Sometimes we can be tempted to do it in our own homes. There's the old saying, familiarity breeds contempt. And so we can lose our edge concerning courtesy. One time early in the relationship, I can't believe it, I'm a Christian, I can't believe it. You're a Christian too? <laughs> We're so amazed at every Christian we meet. We're so thankful for every Christian that we meet. Then over time, we can lose the awe over it. Pretty soon, Chris just a dime a dozen, and the, and the relationship becomes so familiar that we begin to take it for granted and even allowing ourselves to kind of devolve into fault-finding. 
And Peter insists that this isn't to happen in our relationships with one another, but our relationships with one another are to be marked by courtesy and they are to be marked by respect for one another. Rather than looking for a fight with one another or looking for something that continually looking for something wrong in someone's life or arguing over non-essential things. He tells us in verse 9 that we are not to repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but instead we're to repay, repay those things with blessing. And so God says we're not to do that under any circumstances. You do me evil, all right, I know that game. I wasn't always a Christian. I know how to do evil. You revile me. You know how to talk like that to me. I wasn't always a Christian. I know how to talk right back like that to you. So it's in, it's there. It's in us. But he tells us we are not to do that under any circumstances. If somebody else lies about us, even if a Christian does it, and that's the context here, we are not to lie about them. If someone slanders us, even another Christian, we are not to slander them. Again, we're to remember that the world is listening to us and the world is watching us in our treatment of one another. We can't control what anybody else does, but we can only control what the world sees in us as it relates to our attitude toward the body of, of Christ. And so sometimes we think the biggest thing that can be at stake in, in life is my reputation but there's something, an even greater thing that's at stake here if we disobey this command, and that is our Christian witness and our testimony for Christ. Anybody can repay evil for evil. I don't even have to have a quiet time for that. I just got to get up, put on some clothes, have my raisin bran, and head out in the world. Anybody can do that. doesn't take anything special to do that. And when anybody does that in the world, nobody blinks. It's just what's expected. But I'll tell you, when someone not only doesn't repay evil for evil, but they further repay the evil and the reviling with blessing, now you have everyone's attention. That's weird. And God knows people, they may not say it, but they'll look at that and they'll say, where in the world does that come from? I'm not ready to become a Christian yet, but that person has my respect for how they're handling that situation. There's an old saying that goes like this, to return evil for good is demonic, to return evil for evil is human. Anybody can do it. To return good for evil is divine. It's Christ-like, and it's absolutely True. He tells us in verse 9 further that it is our calling to bless people, whatever they do to us, and that this life that he has just described in verses 8 and 9, that it results in a blessing. You say, well, yes, it's a blessing. One day I'll be rewarded for this type of behavior. One day when I get into heaven. That, and that's very, very true. But that's not where Peter goes in verses 10 through 12 with all of this. He begins to talk about the blessing that this kind of life is, this side of heaven, in this life. 
And, and that's what he's speaking about. Sometimes you read a passage like this and you can just kind of naturally conclude that, boy, if I live verses 8 and 9, that's going to be like the most miserable existence a person can have in the whole wide world. That's so one-sided. I'm going to do all the giving and they're going to do all the taking. Of course I'll long for to go to heaven someday to bring an end to that agony and that misery. What kind of a life is that? And it just looks like it's, we're going to head out into the, just the crummiest life imaginable. And yet Peter says the exact opposite. He says it results in a life of blessing. Not one-sided at all. The life that he describes here is a great blessing, as great a blessing for the giver as it is for the receiver. And so Peter quotes Psalm 34, verses 12 through 16, to make the point. And the history between Psalm 34 is fascinating. It's a psalm of David. And the psalm came out of a particular season in David's life, a time when he was in great fear, great confusion, great difficulty, And in that season, he sought refuge among a group of people known as the Philistines in a city called Gath. The details are listed in 1 Samuel chapter 21. He's a young man, about 20 years of age, and he was a faithful servant to and a successful military officer to the first king of Israel, a king by the name of Saul. And ultimately, he was forced to flee the presence of Saul because of Saul's paranoia and his insecurities and his jealousy and just his general madness. And Saul was intent upon killing David. And he mobilized all of his considerable forces to bring about the murder of David. And as a result, David felt like he had no safe place to hide in Israel among God's people, and so he fled to the Philistine city of Gath to find refuge among the Philistines, to find refuge in the world, to find refuge among the enemies of God's people. But a problem developed pretty quickly because Gath was the hometown of a man by the name of Goliath. And Goliath, before he was killed by a man, young boy by the name of David, was a great hero of Gath. And worse yet, David is in the city of Gath. And not only is he in the city, but the Bible tells us that he was at that very moment carrying Goliath's sword. Fairly recognizable sword. I mean, a sword that a ten-footer carries is kind of a recognizable sword. So he's carrying this around through Gath. David is all alone at this time. Now, later on in his life and his ministry, a group of 400 men ultimately becomes 600 men are going to come along his side of his side and they're going to be a great support to him for the rest of his life and the rest of his ministry. Remain loyal to, de- loyal to him almost to a man. But those men don't join themselves to David until after this incident. And so he's all alone in this situation in Gath. And then someone in Gath put two plus two together and they recognized David for who he was. 
And they recited to Achish, the Philistine king of Gath, a song that had been sung of David by all of the women of Israel when he had returned home successfully from battle time after time. And the song went something like this, Saul has killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. The problem is, is that David's killing of the tens of thousands, almost all of them were Philistines. Almost all of the victories were against the Philistines. And so word of this song begins to spread there throughout Gath, and David uh, hears about it, that the song has gone has gotten back not just to the children of Israel where they singing it, but word of the song got back to the Philistines, and all of a sudden he realizes, I'm a dead duck in the city of Gath. They are going to kill me. And so gripped by fear, he begins to pretend that he's crazy, and he starts to scratch at the doors of the gates of the city wanting to get out, and he's ranting and he's raving, and he's probably acting like a madman, and he's just got deliberately letting spit just go down from his mouth and into his beard and the whole big thing and everything. This is David. God's got all these plans for David. Somebody got a Polaroid of this. So this is David doing this. Well, he wants to get out. And he says, all right, if they think I'm a crazy man, they won't think I'm David. And they'll let me out because who, you know, who needs a, one more crazy man in Gath? And, and his whole p- plan worked. And uh, Achish f- saw David doing this. He's horrified and concludes that there's no way that this can be the great uh, David who has had these victories And so you've got him mistaken with somebody else. This isn't David. And so open the gates of the city and get this crazy man out. I don't need any more insane people around me. I've got enough of them already. And so get rid of him. And so David was able to slip out of Gath and physically safe and intact. And his ploy was successful. And he didn't walk out of the city and think to himself, boy, was I ever good. That was a great ploy. He recognized, God, you did a miracle to let me get out of that city with my life. How many of us can look back in our lives and see how many times God saved our lives, even before we became Christians, to recognize his hand. And so David then, recognizing that the hand of the Lord was in his deliverance, he wrote Psalm 34 all about it. And I think it's important to realize that at the foundation of this entire chapter in David's life was the horrible treatment and mistreatment of David by God's people. That's at the foundation of the psalm. How terribly he was treated by King Saul. But Saul could have never been successful in his persecution of David, except he had the cooperation of large numbers of Jews, of covenant people, to join him in his mistreatment and his attack upon David physically and upon his reputation. They joined with Saul to persecute David in this way. And this must have been a very, very disheartening experience for David. Because I'm convinced that when David was just that young shepherd boy in the city of Bethlehem as he kept his father's sheep there in the pastures of Bethlehem, 
And he thought about the king of Israel. And he thought about the capital city of Jerusalem. And wouldn't it be something to be a king? Wouldn't it be something to be a member of the king's cabinet? Wouldn't it be something to be in some high level of government in this great nation that's been separated from the rest of the nations by God? And surely in his mind he had to think to himself that if I could just get introduced to that on some level and as you would make your way up the entire authority structure and power structure, it would mean to be exposed to more and more and more deeply spiritual people each step you take up the ladder. Here is a group of spiritual people, but then to move up in terms of power and authority in the kingdom is to be exposed now to a whole new level of spirituality. And then the day comes in his life where he gets introduced into that whole system. And it's nothing like what he dreamed it would be. And as he finds himself now in the middle of this, it's a shock for him to realize as he's introduced into the system only to find out that as one made their way up the ranks, it was only to be exposed to greater and greater corruption, greater and greater madness. And that it would be true not of the pagans where you'd expect it, but among those who profess to be God's people. And as David is horribly mistreated, by those who claim to be God's people in his youth and in his inexperience, he deals with the mistreatment by running to the world to find refuge to the ungodly. And he soon discovered that it was a terrible, terrible mistake. And he's not the last one to have done that. And the temptation exists to this very day. When a Christian man or a Christian woman with a call of God upon your life, possessing a deep love for God, a great concern for the things of the Lord, and one day you find yourself unfairly persecuted and abused at the hands of so-called Christians, and one day you find yourself being treated so badly, so unfairly, in a way that is so clearly wrong in the eyes of the Lord and the light of the Scripture that you're tempted to say to yourself, I can't believe what's happening to me here. I was never treated this way in the world. I was never treated by my friends in this way in the world who made no claim to know God, to love God, to live for God at all. And if these are the way, if this is the way that things are going to be in terms of the body of Christ, then count me out. I'm going back to the world, back to my worldly friends at least. With them I know what I'm dealing with. They may be wicked, but at least there's no hypocrisy and no acting. One of the interesting things to me about this chapter in David's life is that while he dealt with the unjust treatment of God's people by running to the ungodly as a refuge and going to Gath, he did learn a lesson there. And he would never do it again for the rest of his life, though he would be poorly treated by God's people all the days of his life. And David learned that for all of its spots and all of its wrinkles, the body of Christ, so to speak, is the greatest thing going in the world. But there are a few things you have to remember, a few things you have to do to keep your head screwed on straight, 
And he shared them in Psalm 34, and Peter quotes them here. And so David gives the recipe for a blessed life. Despite the flakiness and the hurtfulness and sometimes even deliberate wrongdoing of God's people. And the blessed life, the recipe is for one who would love life and see good days, verse 10. And he says, here it is, very simply. Verse 10, learn to control your tongue against evil speaking. No matter what anybody else says about you, don't fall down to that level and repay reviling with reviling or rumor with rumor. It feels good to spout off. It feels good to the flesh. It feels good to repay reviling with reviling for about the 10 seconds that you do it. And then it's a big mess afterwards because now I've got to clean up my relationship with God and then now I'm going to have to probably apologize to the person that I was just talking to. You think about how much the quality of our life is determined by what we allow to come out of our lives. He said, guard your tongue against evil speaking and also your lips from speaking deceit. Whoever lies about you, whatever lies they tell, don't come down to their level and repay it with lies. Don't go there. It's a miserable life. And then he says in verse 11 concerning our deeds and our actions that we are to do good and to hate evil. Just steer clear of evil and instead do good to people no matter what anyone else is doing to you. That takes the power of the Holy Spirit, doesn't it? But he said no matter what they're doing to you, do not come down to their level. Instead, he said, verse 11, seek and pursue peace. Look to be an influence for peace in any situation that you're in. Don't get pulled into that fight. So easy to get pulled into those fights. Don't get pulled into that, those fights. It takes two to fight, and you can stay out of it if we choose to. And then he tells us in verse 12 to just simply trust God related to all of this. And so when other Christians fail to live up to this standard and they do you wrong, then just trust God to take care of it. Don't, again, don't come down to their level because if everyone comes down to that level, if five Christians in a hundred are like that and they bring the 95 others down to their level, then what's the body of Christ going to look like all over the world? And five can do it unless there is a deliberate commitment in my heart between the Lord and myself. Lord, I'm not going to come down to their level, but I'm not going to be inactive in the situation. I'm going to be very active in the situation. But by spiritual means, I'm go- I choose to actively trust you to take care of me and my reputation in this situation. And as we do, David said in that psalm that we can be confident that God is aware of the situation. He's watching everything. Somehow just knowing 
when people are sometimes Christians are doing this kind of thing to us. Just having that kind of that secret between you and God before you go to sleep. You say, Lord, you know the facts. And I know the facts. And you know none of them are true. It's going to be fun to see how all this ends and what you do here. And there's a beautiful fellowship with God, beautiful confidence in God that's found in that place. It almost makes it worth it going through the situation at all. And then he says, not only do we be confident of God's awareness, but we're then to pray and pray a lot. In those kind of situations, the only truly safe person to talk to at times like that is the Lord. Because he never repeats anything. He knows how to sift through everything that we're saying. The Bible says, pour out your heart to the Lord. David wrote that as well in the Psalms. And the, and the word pour there means like you knock over a glass of milk and it all goes out. Tell him everything. Empty your whole heart out to him. And where you're wrong, he knows how to say, hey, listen, you know, this, let's clean this up. That's wrong. That's a wrong perspective. And, the, and so he knows how to talk back to us and get things rearranged. But the importance of prayer. And then he says, just to trust God to discipline the offending brother. When he talks about the, God's countenance is against our persecutors, his countenance is his face, his favor. And so the idea is that God will chasten your enemies. When we choose not to repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling again, it is not to be inactive in the situation. It is the most powerful thing we can do. And not doing is doing in the situation. It gives God the most powerful thing to use in that situation. And so... We're putting our faith in God to do what He promises to do to those that persecute us. And I'll tell you, God is very good at what He does, and He is trustworthy in that vein. And then in the meantime, just enjoy, David says, the blessings that God is bringing to your life. Isn't it funny how one little thing over here, or even a major conflict over here, can cause us to lose days or weeks or months, sometimes years, unnecessarily, in our lives, just lost. To the, the, those, were the, those were the lost years of the so-and-so conflict. And God says, don't lose, those, don't lose that time to that. Commit that situation to God and then put your focus on all of the other blessings that God is pouring out in your life and give yourself fully to those things. And he'll take care of that situation over there. Forget all of the other stuff. Just enjoy the blessings that he is going to bring and and is pouring out upon our lives in the middle of difficult things like this. And so God's instruction to us how to treat one another as Christians and then to realize that as we do that, even in unfair situations, it's not as one-sided as it seems. This is the life of blessing for the child of God. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Lord, again, we don't pretend to know what you see and you hear every day in this world and even in the body of Christ. But we do know that what you see and what you hear 
made it necessary for you to include this in your word. And we thank you that you did. We thank you for the privilege of being able to live this kind of life and to not waste our lives being drawn into all of these petty conflicts that we have no control over anyway. And the privilege, Lord, of being able to represent you and the body of Christ and your love and your wisdom through our lives to this world, Lord, that we live in. We thank you, Lord, for this instruction, and we pray that everywhere that it has built something into our lives this morning, something we never quite saw before, everywhere that it's corrected something or pruned something away in our lives, that it would just continue to do that work within us. Lord, we have this flesh. It's still there. It is not the great dominant influence in our life that it once was. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that has become that in our lives. And as we read this today, Lord, we ask as a church body and individually as Christians that you would give us the grace to live this kind of life in our contact with the rest of the body of Christ, even when it's difficult and even when it's costly to do so. It's what we want to do, Lord. It's where we want to live. It's where we want to be. And we ask you to help us to live this and to be this. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.